Hi, this is Paul Starr with another podcast for law, institutions, and public policy. In the previous sessions, we discussed the rise of economic inequality since the 1970s. The same period has seen a striking increase in corporate concentration and monopoly power, the subject we turn to today. These two developments are related. What is surprising about the recent trend toward consolidation and monopoly is that the internet and electronic markets were expected to unleash a new era of competition and decentralization. Entirely new competitors have emerged online, but so has monopoly in the unexpected form of platform monopolies, organizations like Amazon and Facebook in control of crucial platforms for digital markets and digital communication. In this podcast, I want to introduce the general subject of antitrust law and to give a brief history of the internet and the digital economy, focusing on the role of judicial doctrine in facilitating the emergence of monopoly power. Today, you might not be aware of economic concentration because there's a profusion of different products and brands in the marketplace. Often, however, those products and brands come from only a few firms. At a drugstore, you'll find lots of different toothpastes, but Procter & Gamble and Colgate-Palmolive account for 70% of the market. If you want to buy sunglasses, you might check out LensCrafters, Pearl Vision, and Sunglass uh, Sunglass Hut at a mall, unaware that all three of them are owned by the same company, Luxottica. Cable and internet service is controlled nationally, largely by four companies. In one market after another, the last several decades have seen mergers and acquisitions that would not have been allowed earlier and that have now resulted in high levels of concentration in a few giant firms. As Lena Kahn puts it in one of the assigned readings, monopolies and oligopolies produce a host of harms. They depress wages and salaries, raise consumer costs, block entrepreneurship, stunt investment, retard innovation, and render supply chains and complex systems highly fragile. Dominant firms' economic power allows them, in turn, to concentrate political power, which they then use to win favorable policies and further entrench their dominance. Now, much of this criticism of monopolies is shared on both the right and the left, but the very power of the dominant firms has made it extremely difficult to enact effective legislation. In addition, and this is the key point of Kahn's article, the courts have played a crucial role in the weakening of the antitrust laws. Congress is considering new antitrust legislation, which may in fact have bipartisan support. But even if it passes, conservative judges may stand in the way of rigorously enforcing tougher antitrust rules, just as they have undermined existing ones. Healthcare, the case I know best, has seen an enormous change over the past several decades. In metropolitan areas across the country, large-scale healthcare systems have acquired what used to be freestanding hospitals, ambulatory care facilities, and physician practices. Those systems now dominate local and regional healthcare markets, 
forcing up the prices paid by insurers, employers, and ultimately consumers. The consolidated control of key intermediaries in healthcare markets, such as pharmaceutical benefit managers and hospital supply organizations, contribute to the high prices that Americans pay for drugs and medical equipment. One reason this consolidation has taken place in healthcare markets is that even when the Federal Trade Commission and the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department have sought to block mergers, as they did in a series of cases during the 1990s, they've lost in court. And in the few instances when the antitrust authorities have won, the cases have been so prolonged and ultimately so marginal in impact that they have not significantly affected the trend toward monopoly power in healthcare. The assigned articles by Lena Khan and Sanjuk Paul provide some background on both the origins of antitrust laws and how recent judicial doctrine has rendered them largely ineffective. Antitrust legislation began with the Sherman Act of 1890, which was an outgrowth of the anti-monopoly movement among farmers and workers that gained ground in the late 19th century in response to the rise of trusts and other corporate behemoths dominating commerce. As Professor Paul notes, when Senator John Sherman introduced the bill that was named after him, he described it as a means of addressing, and here we're quoting, the inequality of condition, of wealth and opportunity that has grown within a single generation out of the concentration of capital into vast combinations to control production and trade. It was under Theodore Roosevelt that the federal government began using the Sherman Act to break up monopolies. Roosevelt brought 45 cases, and his successor, William Howard Taft, also a Republican, brought 75. But the application of the law raised a question. Did it ban all monopolies, or only some? Exactly what practices were anti-competitive? In a 1911 case, the Supreme Court enunciated a so-called rule of reason that the Sherman Act, rather than banning all monopolies, only banned monopolies unreasonably acquired or maintained. Later, the court declared that certain kinds of restraints on trade, such as price-fixing agreements, were illegal per se. Rather than cede policy-making authority entirely to the court, Congress in 1914 established the Federal Trade Commission, giving the FTC authority to identify and prohibit unfair methods of competition. From that time until the 1970s, antitrust enforcement had what Kahn calls, I'm quoting her, a strong prophylactic orientation against the concentration of private economic power. She notes, enacting this prophylactic orientation into enforcement standards, the antitrust agencies through the 1970s relied on bright line rules and structural presumptions. In other words, rather than enter into complex rule of reason analysis for each case, the antitrust authorities emphasize certain clear-cut rules to make overall policy. Today, the, anti the FTC and the Justice Department's antitrust division continue to share responsibility for antitrust enforcement, but they have been significantly hemmed in as a result of the evolution of judicial doctrine under the influence 
of economists and lawyers identified with the University of Chicago. For the reasons that both Lena Khan and Sanjuk Paul discuss, Chicago school doctrine, as developed by Robert Bork, has sharply tilted the playing field in favor of corporate consolidation. The antitrust laws originally sought to maintain competition for reasons that were as much political as economic. They were intended to limit the control that giant corporations could exert over consumers and suppliers and the political power they could accumulate. But judicial doctrine came increasingly to emphasize, it, to emphasize one criterion alone, efficiency, as it gave priority to what the Chicago School conceived as consumer welfare, understood in practice to mean low prices. In addition, the Chicago School took a benign view of concentrated market power on the theory that even if a firm acquired a monopoly, it would likely be fleeting because the prospect of high profits would entice new entrants into a market. In the new terminology, it wasn't so important for a market to be competitive as long as it was contestable. Contestability presents a sufficient threat in this view to keep the dangers of abuse in check. As Kahn summarizes the argument, the constant threat of entry by firms that will compete away any monopoly threats renders abuse of power unlikely. But in fact, as much experience and research has now shown, dominant firms can impede entry by upstarts or buy them out, a prophylactic orientation of their own. One effect of Chicago school reasoning was to undermine the bright line rules of antitrust law and to turn antitrust toward rule of reason analysis, which became heavily dependent on economists' expert testimony and often bogged down cases as each side brought in its own dueling expert witnesses. The resulting cloud of uncertainty itself became a justification for doing nothing. The Chicago School encouraged the view that because monopolies were fleeting, judges should be wary of taking antitrust actions that could prevent monopolistic firms from achieving new efficiencies. Errors of over-enforcement, in this view, are much worse than errors of under-enforcement. The relaxation of antitrust enforcement against big corporations since the 1980s has made possible the trend toward consolidation. This has been a major factor in the rise of platform monopolies in the digital economy. But of almost equal importance has been the other face of antitrust, the aggressive enforcement of antitrust laws against associations of small players trying to stand up against the dominant firms. As Professor Paul writes, the legislators who enacted the original antitrust laws, I'm quoting here now, did not intend to prohibit economic cooperation among workers, small farmers, and other small producers. But that's exactly what has happened. Under contemporary judicial interpretations of antitrust law, corporations can do things that are illegal for other kinds of associations. Let me quote two examples that Professor Paul gives. The first, if a group of independent truck drivers forms an association to jointly bargain their prices, that combination is a cartel, automatically illegal, perhaps criminal. But if the same truck drivers 
go to work for a company that charges customers for their services on a single price schedule, there is no antitrust violation, even though this arrangement suppresses price competition precisely to the same extent. What is illegal outside a corporation is legal within it. Second, if drivers for Uber join an association to demand higher pay, the competition authorities currently assume that their joint action is illegal, but Uber itself has evaded antitrust scrutiny, even though it fixes the prices that customers pay for the driver's services. Professor Paul then goes on to make the connection to rising inequality. By preventing associations of workers or small producers from coordinating their activities, the evolution of antitrust has contributed significantly to the rising inequalities of the past half century. Millions of people now work as independent contractors and suppliers who in the past would have been employees. But if they try to organize now, they run afoul of the antitrust laws. In 1935, employees gained rights of collective bargaining through the Wagner Act, but we have no Wagner Act for independent contractors and employees. Quite the contrary, they're subject to prosecution under the antitrust laws for organizing in defense of their interests. The central issue in Professor Paul's article concerns what she refers to as economic coordination rights. Economic coordination, she argues, is inescapable. Antitrust law effectively assigns economic coordination rights to the corporation while, den while de denying them to other forms of organization that might also be able to achieve the same production efficiencies while being more egalitarian. As antitrust law has been turned on its head, so has the Internet. In what follows, I'm going to draw on an article of my own from 2019. In just two decades, digital technology and the Internet have gone from exciting the dreams of a revolutionary new era to embodying fears about a world gone deeply wrong. The digital revolution now threatens to undermine values it was supposed to advance. Trustworthy knowledge and democracy, even competition and personal freedom. It isn't as though the technology did this to us on its own, or that we stumbled absent-mindedly into an alternative dystopian universe. Today's technological regime grew out of critical choices to ignore lessons of the past and allow private power to go unregulated. The explosive growth of the online economy in the 1990s and early 2000s appeared to validate the idea that markets were best left to themselves. The internet of that era was neoliberalism's greatest triumph. After the federal government financed key breakthroughs and then opened the internet to commercial development, digital innovation and entrepreneurship created new online means of exchange new wealth, and new communities. But that online economy now looks altogether different with the rise of platform monopolies. Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, and Microsoft control whole ecosystems of the digital world, dominating key choke points for commerce and news. Just as the early internet fostered the illusion that it was inherently supportive of competition, 
So it fostered the illusion that it was inherently protective of personal autonomy. After all, no one compelled you to disclose your true identity online. Yet the digital world today has made possible the most comprehensive system of surveillance ever created. Network devices track our every movement and communication. A new form of enterprise has emerged that Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. As Google, Facebook, and other firms sweep up data about our lives, preferences, personalities, and emotions. The promise of the information age wasn't that corporations would acquire more information about us. We were supposed to get access to more information about the world and new opportunities for participation in public debate. The internet enthusiasts proclaimed would undermine the power of the mass media and its gatekeepers, the editors, producers, and executives who once controlled public communication. Instead of relying on authority, people would be able to see the facts for themselves in documents and videos from all sides. Transparency would replace authority. The reality has turned out to be less benign. The online economy has destroyed the traditional business model of journalism, resulting in a dramatic decline in professional reporting. And because Google and Facebook dominate digital advertising, no alternative online model has emerged capable of financing the same reporting capacities, particularly at the local and regional level. Meanwhile, social media platforms have replaced the old mass media gatekeepers, shaping the public's exposure to news and debate through their algorithms. Those algorithms, for example, in Facebook's newsfeed, Google Search, YouTube recommendation engine, and Twitter's trending topics, now influence which content and viewpoints gain visibility among users. All too often, however, social media have become powerful vectors of disinformation, polarization, and hatred. These problems of growing monopoly power, increased surveillance, and the degradation of reliable sources of news afflict other countries as well as the United States. But the digital economy has been a distinctly American development. How did we arrive where we are today? The growth of the internet and digital economy has been a paradigmatic story of American technology since the Cold War. The digital revolution began under the aegis of the state, moved to the market, and has now become an illustration of what goes wrong when the dominant players in markets are unrestrained by law. From the 1940s to the early 1970s, the federal government financed and guided most of the development of computers and electronic communication, largely via the Defense Department. It was a defense office, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, or ARPA, that funneled and supervised the, that funded and supervised the creation of ARPANET, the forerunner to the internet. During the 20th century, the United States also extensively regulated telecommunications. While AT&T had an effective monopoly, regulatory policies constrained telephone rates, promoted universal service, and barred discrimination, requiring telecom companies to act as common carriers, that is, to provide equal service to all. 
because of its treatment of capital investment, the regulatory system gave AT&T an incentive to devote ample funds to research and innovation. And its research arm, Bell Labs, produced an extraordinary array of advances, including data networking, the transistor, the laser, and cellular telephony. Bell's advances were subject to compulsory licensing, which meant they were available for others to build on. Thanks to this mixed economy, the computing and telecommunications industries in the United States developed an enormous lead over their counterparts in other countries. The source of America's head start and comparative advantage in digital innovation. Nonetheless, the telecom regulatory regime had a serious downside. It gave AT&T the power to control every aspect of the telephone network, including what devices could connect to it. Like any monopoly, AT&T sought to protect its privileged position. After the Defense Department received a proposal in 1964 for a communication network similar to the Internet, an AT&T executive said, damned if we are going to allow the creation of a competitor to ourselves. The law at that point was on AT&T's side. The federal government's involvement in computers and telecommunication began to decline, however, in the late 1970s and 1980s, coinciding with a general neoliberal shift in national policy. Here I'm using the term neoliberal specifically to refer to ideas and policies that seek to create markets and rely on market forces. The neoliberal arsenal includes such measures as privatization, free trade agreements, deregulation, tax cuts, and reductions in social spending. What distinguishes neoliberalism from the 19th century laissez-faire is that it has arisen after a period of liberal and social democratic state building. In the standard history, neoliberalism owes its philosophical origins to Friedrich Hayek and his circle in the 1940s, and emerged as a political force with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in the late 1970s and 1980s. Politically, however, deregulation differed from other market-oriented measures. Some forms of deregulation, such as deregulating the telephone industry, attracted a lot of support from prominent liberals and progressives, including, for example, Senator Ted Kennedy and Ralph Nader, on the grounds that the regulatory agencies had been captured by the industries they were supposed to regulate and were no longer serving the public. Limiting AT&T's power enjoyed support across the ideological spectrum. Although the, the big step would come in 1984, when an antitrust case resulted in a court breaking up AT&T, the federal government had already begun loosening the telephone monopoly by that time. In cases in 1956 and 1968, federal authorities reduced AT&T's control over devices attached to the telephone network. And these eight early regulatory, deregulatory steps, together with the subsequent development of microcomputers, opened the way for consumers and businesses in the late 1970s and 80s to obtain modems and dial-up access to early online bulletin boards and proprietary networks. 
The big three proprietary networks of those days were CompuServe, the original leader in the 1980s, America Online, which grew rapidly in the early 90s, and Prodigy. For a time, it looked as though these companies would dominate what were then called computer information services. Each company had its own distinct news sources, discussion groups, email systems, and rules. For example, AOL restricted its forums to no more than 23 people, effectively limiting the reach of any individual user. At the time, it was by no means obvious that the Internet, originally limited to government use, then expanded to universities and research institutes, would emerge as the framework for electronic communication. But the Internet had a more open architecture, including a design principle known as end-to-end -end that distinguished it from other networks. An end-to-end -end design puts intelligence in the applications installed by the users at either end of the network rather than in the center with the network manager. As a result, unlike the proprietary networks, the Internet was permission-free. It invited and decentralized innovation. Opening up the Internet to wider access, including commercial development, was therefore simultaneously a move toward the market and away from proprietary control of the network itself. That was what happened in the first half of the 1990s, when rules against commercial use of the Internet were dropped. The Internet backbone was privatized, and a host of new ap applications were created, including the World Wide Web. Much of this new software also developed on a non-proprietary, open-source basis, though that did not reflect any legal or technical requirement. Indeed, a new architecture of control could be built on top of the Internet, which is what the online platforms would eventually do. The politics of Internet policy in the 1990s were less ideo ideological than generational. In 1992, when Bill Clinton and Al Gore championed the development of what they called a new information superhighway, they were signaling a generational change in national leadership. As a senator, Gore had done more than anyone else in national politics to open up and expand the Internet. National policy during the Clinton administration steered clear of any regulation of the emerging online economy. Internet service providers were even subsidized by being exempted from network access charges. And, network, and Internet intermediaries received broad immunity from liability for user-generated content under Section 230 of the, Community, of the Communications Decency Act, adopted as part of general telecommunications legislation in 1996. The best approach to policy, according to William Kennard, the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, appointed by Clinton, was to allow the marketplace to find business solutions as an alternative to intervention by government. That general attitude continued to dominate policy toward the Internet under George W. Bush and Barack Obama. While Republicans opposed a broader role for government in general, Democrats opposed it for the Internet in particular, and the tech industry as well. The Internet had flourished, seemingly, without government. So why risk endangering that? Those early beliefs about the Internet 
in line with the general neoliberal premises of the time, left both policymakers and the public unprepared for the rise of platform monopolies and surveillance capitalism, the devastation to professional journalism, and the use of digital communication for disinformation. If the Internet had emerged in a different period, it might have developed differently. But the online economy has developed at a time when the three chief means of keeping corporate power in check, antitrust, economic regulation, and public ownership, have all been in retreat. The federal government did bring one important antitrust suit when it sought to break up Microsoft during the 1990s, a case that finally ended with a, ended with a consent decree in 2002 and probably prevented Microsoft from squashing Google in its infancy. Since then, however, the government has raised no obstacles as the on online platform co companies have expanded, bought out potential rivals, and gained monopoly power nor has the government raised any obstacles to the platform's accumulation of personal data. Unlike the European Union, Congress has enacted no general legislation protecting consumer privacy online. Only in the last few years has serious attention focused on the changes needed to deal with the new concentrations of unaccountable power. Now, this is not the first time that a communications revolution has seen a rapid turn from wide open competition to concentrated control. The same thing happened with the telegraph between the 1840s and 1860s, when Western Union gained a monopoly. It happened again with the telephone between the mid-1890s and 1910s, when AT&T took over that industry. And it happened a third time with radio, from the early to the late 1920s, when NBC and CBS became the dominant national network that monopolies would arise yet again should have surprised nobody. Although the Internet changed many things, it did not change the tendency toward monopoly in network communications. The Internet's effect on economic concentration, however, may be even greater than the effects of earlier communications media. Today, Amazon alone has nearly half of online sales. Google and Facebook are taking virtually all the growth in digital advertising. And venture capitalists hesitate to fund some new startups because the big tech companies can so easily drive them under. Instead of diffusing wealth, the digital revolution has been concentrating it in a few giant firms and their shareholders. Antitrust and regulatory policies might have limited the growth of monopolies and abuses of market power. But under Chicago School Doctrine, Corporate dominance of a market is no problem if it improves consumer welfare, interpreted largely to mean lower consumer prices. That criterion has made it difficult to prosecute antitrust cases against companies like Facebook and Google, which rely on advertising and user-generated content and charge consumers nothing, or against Amazon, which has sacrificed profits for market domination. Federal authorities have waved through mergers, such as Facebook's acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp, even though those mergers reduce consumers' leverage in the marketplace, for example, on privacy policies, and reinforce the monopoly power of the platform giants. During the struggles against monopoly power in the railroads and other industries in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, 
Congress and the courts took steps, not only against horizontal mergers, but also against anti-competitive practices, such as predatory pricing, that is, cutting prices below cost to drive out competitors, price discrimination, that is, varying prices to individual buyers or sellers according to their characteristics or circumstance, and vertical integration, which is combining stages of production or distribution normally operated as separate businesses. In recent decades, however, the courts have tended to dismiss these concerns, failing to anticipate the new potential for monopoly power in digital platforms, which benefit from network effects. The larger a network grows, the more valuable it becomes to each participant it connects, and conversely, the greater the cost of being excluded. As that cost of exclusion rises, so does the market power of a platform company. In the digital world, scale also brings the capacity to extract data from users, to train systems of machine intelligence. Only the largest companies can compete effectively. A platform like Amazon, Lena Khan has argued, has clear incentives to pursue growth over short-term profits, a strategy rewarded by investors that makes predatory pricing, as she writes, highly rational, even as existing doctrine treats it as irrational and therefore implausible. Amazon's sky-high market capitalization testifies to that logic. The size of Amazon Marketplace makes it essential for other sellers, even though by participating in it, they provide Amazon with critical data, which it sometimes uses to swoop in and undersell them with its own branded versions of their most lucrative products. As a result of the high cost of exclusion from that marketplace, Amazon has other sellers at its mercy and can impose onerous terms on them. Antitrust investigations and litigation are now underway. But breaking, breaking up big tech will be difficult. Historically, such cases have typically dragged on for years, and the odds of success today may not be high in view of prevailing judicial doctrine. Federal authorities may also be reluctant to break up American tech companies at a time when weakening them may indirectly strengthen their Chinese rivals. That's not to say structural change should be off the table. Reducing the market power of platform monopolies wins support from substantial segments of business, not just consumer groups. The antitrust laws have been turned on their head to discipline the weak instead of the powerful. They might still be turned right side.